Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. Did you just move from Seattle? Yeah. Yeah, I've been living in Seattle through pandemic times and (laughs) have wanted to move away from Seattle uh, for a bit now. What was it about Seattle that you wanted to not be a part of? Um, I grew up there and I've lived there my whole life. Gotcha. And also just kind of the gradual decline of the concept of Seattle has kind of (laughs) bummed me out over the years. Because I was growing up there like I was a kid in the 80s and then, you know, teenager in the 90s. And so like I've seen kind of like what peak Seattle is. And then I, you know, became an adult and Seattle was no longer the place I wanted to like be an adult in that version of Seattle. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, all of like the Amazon boom and all this stuff just kind of kept gradually transforming it away from what I knew and loved Seattle to be. So it's been kind of a sad place to live for me. Yeah, There's still, you know, little bits here and there, like kind of speckled throughout the city, but it's kind of a hard thing to have grown up there and then see where it is today. What was like peak Seattle experience for you in the 90s Mm. when you think about like what the the best moments for you there were? Mostly it was just kind of like existing around like the University of Washington, like when I was in high school, like, you know, my nerdy background being, you know, part of the anime club and all that stuff. And like, Uh you know, my friends and I would go to the UW campus and we'd go to like, you know, anime viewings at like one of their like lecture halls. And so we'd go there and then hang around the Ave there in the university district and just like get food. And, you know, there was like improv shows. Do you ever go to Jet City Improv? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. And then they also did redub movie stuff where they would just mute the audio and then perform, you know, completely new dialogue and stuff. <laughs> it's always ridiculous. That's awesome. And yeah, like there's just a whole bunch of like really cute indie shops in that neighborhood. And then also going to college at Cornish, which is up on Broadway in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. Uh-huh. I think Capitol Hill is one of the sort of surviving parts of like Seattle. It's still pushing against like gentrification a whole lot. So there's a lot of it that's kind of dying out to like, you know, the apartment style where it's like retail on the, on the first floor and then like five stories above it. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. literally everywhere in, in Capitol Hill now. And none of the retail spaces have been like filled like it's all just vacant right? retail yeah. at this point because they're so, so expensive yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they tore down all these businesses just to put up you know apartments that there's nothing below and it's, yeah it's sad i'm curious when you were hanging out at uw they had this cool like radical 60s music scene mm-hmm. like the pauline oliveros kind of crowd were they oh, still yeah. like around and doing stuff or had that pretty much passed was they they got Schechter, robert Schechter? is that name right there's some trombonist who was part of their 60s vibe there. I forget their name too. But yeah, that was all like super present actually at like Cornish because a lot of those, you know, folks that were active in the 60s, you know, were basically professors now at the school that I was learning music at. So it was really cool to kind of get stories, you know, from that time and then like, you know, learn from the lessons of, you know, whatever it is they were doing and sort of, you know, the more like the weirder side of uh, sort of contemporary (laughs) classical stuff. Um. Yes. I I love that. Like it wasn't quite hippie stuff, but it was like, 
yeah. these yeah. classical music happenings, mm-hmm. right, from the 60s where they were really yeah. trying weird shit and it seemed like having a great time and also probably doing a lot of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's cool. So do, who did you have as a professor that was part of that? My name recollection is completely awful, so yeah. <laughs> I would not be able to pull a name out of a hat right now. But it was an interesting thing because like, I was learning a lot, but like, the actual music that I wanted to write was so counter to like all of that. So uh-huh. it was definitely a sort of a struggle you know, to kind of keep my identity while also like, learning as much as I could from what they had to offer. (laughs) What was different about it? I mean, I came from basically just being raised on video game music (laughs) and, you know, sort of all this music that was, you know, primarily from Japan, primarily inspired by, you know, a lot of Japanese pop groups and electronic music and all this stuff. And so like all of this music that was interpreted through video game music, which was then, you know, in the games that I was playing, there was a lot of sensibilities I feel like that were common with like, more like Bach era music than like what <laughs> they were teaching. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. my favorite classes were like my counterpoint classes, right? Where I was yeah. learning all of these sort of like basic fundamentals of old harmony, whereas they were sort of pushing more towards, you know, a serial music, uh, yeah. you know, tone row kind of stuff with their compositions. And so I was very much fighting against that. I was like, I want to have catchy melodies. I want to have like, you know, this pop, <laughs> pop sensibility to my music. So by the end of my four years there, I was kind of hanging out with a singer songwriter crowd more so than like either the classical or jazz crowds there. (laughs) There's definitely some crossover with the jazz crowd because they were a little bit more like sort of focused on just, you know, the performative aspects of music and having a fun time with it, not necessarily thinking too hard about it. It's so interesting to me how that serial crowd, you know, this is just what happens all the time, but, you know, they started out as, you know, like the new wild, you know, (laughs) technique, whatever, in the 20s. And then by the 60s, it's like, ugh, this shit. (laughs) This is what we have to do now. You're still doing this? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and it became like so entrenched that rebelling against that was like, no, we want melodies. (laughs) Like, actually, I I like triads. They're nice. (laughs) I want to enjoy listening to music and not just like sit there being like, oh, <laughs> I'm appreciating. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I learned to appreciate that kind of music. It wasn't sure. you know, what I wanted to write. The most interesting experience about it for me was like looking at their notation, right? Yes. Especially if it was like the more inventive and weird the notation, like the more interesting it was to listen to because you just kind of like puzzle through this like sheet of like, you yes. know, all of these directions that are, you know, being conveyed to the performers and they're interpreting that in their own way and making this performance out of it. And, you know, it was fascinating. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was fascinating. (laughs) To me, it always felt with a couple counterexamples of a bunch of people who were trying to drain all emotion out of (laughs) music. For people who don't know, and this (laughs) may or may not include you, yeah, we should probably say what serial music is. Do you want to explain this to to people? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, dealing with tone rows, and I have to explain what tone rows are now, but it's (laughs) essentially kind of like saying, okay, we're going to define a set of parameters that we are putting in place for this piece of music. So we are setting a sequence, you know, a a sequence of, of numbers, essentially, within the entire like scale of music and this is the order in which they are performed and then sort of using that rule set to guide the composition of a piece in sort of like layman's terms i guess 
Yeah. So another way of saying that is these guys at Schoenberg, Weber, and all these guys were like, scales? Ugh. Yeah. Old hat. <laughs> Let's do some new stuff. And came up with a generalization of the scale that they call this tone row. Yeah. To me, the worst example of this is like a Boulez who is like, that stuff is generally unlistenable to me, <laughs> even though some of it's great. It's just like a bunch of people that seem very repressed and <laughs> deeply unhappy and <laughs> took it out on everybody else musically. Although some of it is is wonderful and they're amazing pieces. Yeah, there were a couple of artists, I, I feel like, or artists, <laughs> stalking in pop sensibilities again, a couple of composers <laughs> that we studied that I feel like they took their constraints of their teachers, you know, the people that were studying with Schoenberg, you know, and were able to kind of like bring more of a musicality and a sense of joy yeah. into their music, you know, by kind of like almost using those constraints to break out of them yes. in a way. And those were definitely the, the composers that I, I felt like the most attached to in studying all of that, where you took these rules that, you know, were passed down to you <laughs> and you did something interesting with them and like something that like evokes something in me. And like, that's a really cool thing. And I think there's a lot of like modern composers now, they really learn from those sensibilities and are doing fascinating stuff within that space. Yep. There's a composer, it's like Chimera, Chimeratio is a composer that works in like digital fusion space and does a lot of stuff inspired by that sort of serial music and does it all with sort of like chip sounds and like, you know, stuff that's kind of oh, based awesome. in, in video game music and origins and kind of fusing those passions to really make something fascinating out of that. And I think like, you know, their music is a really cool thing that came from those lessons and like a fascination with delving into serialism, but in a way that wasn't necessarily like, Bru it, you know, it's like, brutal, for me, it was always you know, like, yeah, <laughs> pull from the toolbox, take what you need from it. And then maybe don't treat the rules so seriously as yeah. some of these early guys did. For me, the composer that I always loved was Berg, who mm -hmm. has some serial pieces that are just like incredible and actually sound good. And, you know, are, are emotional and really kind of passionate pieces yeah. in this style. But yeah, rules are meant to be broken, right? Yeah. So you learn all the tools you want and then do whatever you want with them. Yeah. So going through schooling for you, were you always getting towards like video game composing as you were going mm. through or was it something that developed or? I think that was definitely the main focus throughout because I got into music because of games. That was the sort of driving factor for me learning how to write my own music is because, you know, I was picking apart basically MIDI files of transcriptions of video game music and seeing how it ticked, right? You know, I would import them into my MIDI program and it would put it, you know, in sheet music. And I would look at that and kind of like, this is how music works according to these video game soundtracks. And that was sort of the self-teaching that got me into writing music and then eventually applying for music school. So a lot of that was kind of like, I'm going to see what this whole greater music world is all about based on like, you know, what inspired me to write music. And, you know, while I was there, I was definitely thinking about what direction music could go for me because I didn't necessarily know if a future in game composition was something that would actually happen you know, the game industry still kind of felt like this weird, inaccessible place at the time because it was well before like indie games had really kind of taken off as like a viable like entry point into doing, 
video game development. So there was like local game studios like Bungie and Valve, you know. And, and so when I graduated from college, you know, this was 2006. So I was kind of like, well, the only people like locally that I could even like approach to like be a game composer already have these like hugely notable composers working with them. You know, at the time it was like, you know, Marty O'Donnell was at Bungie and like the really talented folks over at Valve, you know, were in-house. So like I went, <laughs> which is really funny, like, you know, because I was living in Seattle and then I went to uh, my first GDC game developers conference and went to Valve's booth, <laughs> like in like the <laughs> business section, because I got some advice from people that were like, here's how to break in to video games. And they were like, just go to GDC and just like ask to make an appointment to talk to an audio director oh, or something. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I went to Valve and I was like, hey, can I make an appointment? I have demo CDs, all this stuff. And this was before I knew like anything at all. I was so like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just like, <laughs> yeah. hey, Valve. And they were so busy. I didn't make an appointment. Like all that really happened from like my first GDC trip was meeting other game composers who also were trying to make it, you know? And that was my experience of like meeting these these people that were like really, really passionate and like gearing the output they wrote towards all of the potential like huge AAA studios that could potentially hire them. But then also like mobile stuff was starting to come up at that time, like Facebook games were starting to get more popular. Right. So like there was all these people that were like really kind of like focusing on this sort of AAA Call of Duty military shooter style. <laughs> and so like I thought that's what I had to do. I had to take all of the style of music that I loved writing and kind of filter it down into something that I really didn't know if I wanted to do. So yeah, it was it was an interesting experience going into college with this, you know, sort of drive to write video game music and make really good video game music inspired by the people that, you know, I grew up with listening to. And then coming out the other end and like thrust into this world of Western development where I was like, I don't know if this is the place for me. I don't know if this is where I actually fit. So it was a lot of soul searching of trying to figure out what I was going to do with, with the music that I love to write. And so I didn't actually really go into games like as a composer immediately. It wasn't a thing that I really could get to take off because it was all these games that I really had no interest in writing music right. for. <laughs> yeah. It's so damaging to one's self-worth too. <laughs> Be, yeah. Like trying to put yourself out there and nobody is biting. There's almost no way unless uh, you're just wired that way to not take it personally. Right. As like, it's not the system, it's me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I at least had like some sense of it at the time where I was like, I am specifically writing these demo tracks to like a gear towards someone else like this is not my music that they are dismissing this is me trying right. to do the kind of music that they would want and not right, being right. able yeah. to do that you know and i was still writing stuff that i loved you know i was writing these like piano suites and stuff on my own time and one of the things that happens at gdc is there's this organization called the game audio network guild they do a lot of like 
demo listening events at like GDCs where they'll get like a panel of people that are like professionals in the industry and newcomers will bring their demo reels and like play them for them and get feedback basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was pretty cool. And I definitely got a sense of like, you know, the variety of people, you know, and their styles and everything that they were putting out there. And the first time like I went, my demo was very much geared towards that big sort of AAA stuff, but like it still felt kind of like my music in a sense. So it wasn't all the way there and I think everyone could kind of like sense that where it's like uh-huh. you're trying to do something maybe it's not working out and then the second year that I went I was kind of dead set on not doing one of those because I'd had like such a terrible experience my first time but I was rooming with a friend at the time Adam Goodman he's worked on a whole bunch of stuff now and like does like Disneyland parks you know oh, background music and all oh, yeah. kinds of stuff cool. and I was rooming with him at GDC and I played some of like my piano suites for him. And he was like, just play one of those pieces because this is really good. And he was like, really like egging me on to do this. So I did that and I, I brought one of my, my little piano pieces. And it was like a duet for two pianos. Uh-huh. And literally everything else was just like big orchestral, like, like, you know, sort of like Hollywood kind <laughs> yeah, of vibes. Yeah. And then suddenly I just had this like little like piano waltz that I played and everyone on stage was like, wow, this is really good. And then I didn't get hired for anything. And it was just kind of like, well, <laughs> you wrote really good music, but this isn't what we're hiring for. So, Right. So at what point did you see the industry kind of start to tilt? Because hearing about that now in the year 2022, it feels like everything is in a completely opposite direction now. Yeah, totally. Really was, I think, with... <laughs> put in dramatic terms, the rise of indie games. Like, Hold on, would y'all give me one second? My dog just ran past carrying my underwear, so I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> okay. Such as podcasting. I am so sorry. <laughs> so we're definitely keeping that audio in, at the very least. <laughs> just the moment of abject terror as I realized what was happening. <laughs> At least she's fast. Title of app, first of all. So that's the episode title. <laughs> great. Sorry, sorry, Lena, what were you Lena, saying? Please continue. Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm very sorry. This is a great moment to introduce the show. Huh? Oh. That seems like a natural break. So everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wacht. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. That's me. Over there, we have Maybe, who was just munching on my underwear. The one who just spoke, that was Brian Wacht. Hi. Our mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lena Rain. I'm a composer for video games and a game creator. Hooray. And what video game music have you done that people might know you from? I've <laughs> done a little, little indie game called Celeste. I've also done music for another even smaller indie game called Minecraft. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a AAA MMO called Guild Wars 2. Wow. Awesome. And you've done stuff for Deltarune too, right? I did some collaborations with Toby for Deltarune, yeah. It was, you know, a couple tracks. They're really good tracks. Thank you. (laughs) Also, recently, Chicory, A Colorful Tale, and Moonglow Bay are two other games that I've done. For a second, I had to parse what you said. I thought you said Chick Korea, A Colorful (laughs) Tale. And I was like, does a Chick Korea game? It's close. I wish. I wish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, you had an opportunity to say, munching on my undies. That you didn't take, <laughs> which I feel like just rolls off the. I was like, she's gonna say, you got through munching on my und. 
and then yeah. finished it with well, her wear. you know, <laughs> you're you're an artist. Yes, I I'm overcoming art. my own underwear shame. You don't expect that, like, you know, this dog that I love and care for and feed and walk <laughs> and wipe her butt when poop gets stuck to her butt. And she betrays me when I'm recording an episode of our show <laughs> by running past with my unmentionables. So it's all good. But not unmunchables. God damn it, Brian. <laughs> So I'm curious, when you were studying in school, I also have a composition degree from a small liberal arts college, a good music program, but not like a conservatory or anything. And I learned approximately zero about production or actually making music. So I'm curious, was that that (laughs) same for you? Oh, yeah. In fact, it was very taboo for me to involve production in my composition. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like to many academic composers, it's like that's not the intellectual part, right? Right. Like the theory, that's the brain stuff. A symphony orchestra is not produced, it plays the notes. So yeah. Yeah, the whole conversation I feel like at college was about music is a conversation between the composer and the performer. Right. It is creating a series of instructions that a performer interprets and plays in the moment. And that was very much the mentality, especially at the time between 2002, 2006, when I was in school there. And the composition process was a very sort of like protected thing, I feel, for a lot of my professors who were admittedly much older than I was (laughs) and tenured and had been there for tens of 20s of years. All classically trained, blah, blah, blah. Incredible composers in their own rights and very much would love for me to get off of my computer and sit at a piano and pull out a pencil and, you know, write, <laughs> write on a yes. blank piece of notation paper what it is that I am thinking. Because if I have a facsimile of instruments perform my music before it is performed by a human, I might get the wrong idea about what mm. you know <laughs> the instrument might sound like. That was literally like a conversation that I had with one of my professors because I was writing for a chamber quartet. So it was like flute, clarinet, violin, and cello. And so the way that I compose and have composed <laughs> for a very long time is if I'm writing in an actual like notation program, which I don't do anymore. I write entirely within like a DAW, you know, digital audio workstation interface, playing things in on my keyboard. But at the time, it was writing in Sibelius, you know, a notation program, and I had, you know, the orchestral samples loaded up, you know, instrumental samples, and I would play through things and listen back to it. And and what I would do, you know, when I was sharing the piece that I was working on, like everyone else was kind of like taking their parts and putting them in front of the piano and playing the parts as much as they could in like a piano reduction. And so what I did is I, I recorded out each of the individual stems, tweaked them, the MIDI data in my DAW, and made it sound pretty with a little reverb on it, and mm. bounced it to oh, you know wave file, burned a CD, and brought the CD into class, and played that over the sound system. <laughs> and that was just like, oh, how could you do that? You know, <laughs> Don't get used to this. I think there was implicitly so on top yeah. of that for me, the next level up, of that was the real like talented composers don't even play it. You just write the dots. 
Like oh, yeah. it's just in your head and you <laughs> yeah, can yeah, hear yeah. everything oh, and yeah. then you, you write it down like Mozart style or whatever the fuck that is. And <laughs> it's the most elitist bullshit. My brain does not work that way musically. I can like sightseeing or whatever, but I'm not going to look at an orchestral score and hear it in my head. No way. It's not going to happen. I guess elitist and <laughs> is, is the best way to, to put it. Seems very like anti-fun. Yes. <laughs> You're not allowed to enjoy the music. How dare you? It's very much a mindset of like the art is this very specific technique that is protected. And if we want to be real about it, it is the white supremacist uh, lineage of music <laughs> theory that has been taught and passed down through the ages. And literally, it is the white culture of music creating. And like any other part of the world that is not Western you know, classical music... They're just making music, you know. They're playing it. They're you know engaging with it. They're you know doing the sounds yeah, lots of different in real ways, time. Yes. Yeah, there's so many ways of composing music, and so like when you're going to school to study Western classical music, like you are specifically going there to study this one lineage that has been held up as the sort of epitome, you know, the one true. <laughs> Yes. Composition <laughs> technique, and, you know? Some people t would take this to this really crazy extreme. So, Leighton, there's a thing called Shankarian analysis, which is like, <laughs> was invented for basically Bach, Bach pieces, you know, studies of harmony and counterpoint, and makes no sense for a lot of music written after, I'm going to be conservative here and say like 1850. You're harmonically way beyond that. And there are these assholes that would try to <laughs> apply it to everything. And it's like, what are you doing with it? You know, it just is not helpful to understand anything that's going on. Yeah. And look, I was never really forced to do that for complicated stuff, but it's like, what are we fucking doing here, guys? This is just not <laughs> helpful or useful or fun. Are we making music or what? Or are we just going to put dots down? <laughs> Yeah. It's one of those things where like I can step back now and I can like kind of see what's going on, where the threads, you know, that have sort of led to the way things are right now. But like at the time I felt so confused by like what was going on. It was just like, why am I being forced to write music in this way when like the music that I love and the music that inspired me to write music has nothing to do with any of this? <laughs> yeah, totally. I would hope that and I know some music schools, it's different now and yeah. they are, you yeah. know, more receptive to different styles. Oh, yeah. Like there's an entire like video game composition like course or like track, I think, at Cornish now. Like, oh, there is. Wow. Oh, yeah. wow. That's awesome. Things have changed there in a positive way, I think. And I would love to go back and just kind of like <laughs> see see what's going on there now. Is there a big game dev scene in Vancouver? Yeah, indie games for the most part, yeah. There's a huge like animation scene for all kinds of productions and, you know, film and all that stuff, but I think like the most predominant like game development stuff here is like indie games. At least that's, you know, what I'm a part of is the Celeste devs are here. So, yeah, I'm good friends with them and hang out with them all the time and so it's great to be there with them here and then also Greg Lopanov who I worked on Chicory with is also here. So all of these wonderful folks that I love to collaborate with are in the area and then their friends and like the sort of greater scene that extends beyond that. So there's a lot of cool stuff happening here. I think before my dog ran in here with my underwear. Uh, <laughs> Layton, say the phrase. I'm not saying she was munching the undies. Anyway, <laughs> before that happened, we were talking about the transition, sort of like the indie scene changing, oh, becoming more yeah. of a thing with games. 
so I think my question was like, when did you feel that start to shift? And like, what did that mean for the music that you were making at the time? Sure. It was kind of a gradual thing for me of like being aware of that. Like as much as I dislike Twitter uh, in, in general now, like I credit that with a lot of like my just kind of being aware of more of the industry now, especially like in the sort of the early days of, of Twitter, like I was making an account to follow various, you know, video game professional folks. It was a different beast back then. It was oh, a much, so much, much better. different beast. I was tweeting from text messages on my phone. Wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, like just kind of being aware of the fact that there was indie development happening and then people showing up at, at GDC and hanging out at the park, you know, there instead of actually going to like the sessions, like just hanging out at the park and like meeting people. And that was literally kind of how how I met the Celeste devs and then got a DM from Maddie one day being like, hey, we're working on a game. Do you want to do music for it? You know, and so it was like literally just kind of like that process of just becoming friends with people that were also making cool games really kind of drew me into that. It's those GDC Park friendships. Like that's <laughs> oh, yeah. the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> it's such a cliche, but it is also so true that just like get to know people, hang out, quote unquote network, which is my least favorite word. But. Well, yeah, literally like the best form of networking is just making friends. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And basically it was that. And then also I took honestly kind of giving up a little bit for me, <laughs> for me to get into like the space to write the music I wanted to write. Because like the music yeah. of Celeste would not exist if I hadn't given up on trying to pursue video games as a career. And I started just writing music for myself. Yep. And I just wrote my own solo albums. And I put you know, a solo EP out there called Singularity. And it was just this really just emotional giant synth exploration kind of thing. And it was me, you know, this was music that was not filtered through trying to be a video game. It was not filtered through trying to be, you know, a classical composer. It was not any of these things that was mm. just like me trying to put on a mask or score something else. It was just like, this is me in a music form. <laughs> and putting myself out there like that, I think, you know, that was what got me some initial attention, especially of the Celeste devs to be like, oh, this resonates with me and what we're trying to create here. So, you know, let's put this composer in our game. <laughs> and yeah. and so that's kind of what led me to start exploring stuff with that space and like allowing myself to be vulnerable in the music that I was writing, I feel. And I've kind of taken that with all of my games since then and have continued to pursue my own solo projects because I feel through those solo works, like I am exploring what I want to do, you know, as a composer. Yep. And if I was just doing back-to-back, wall-to-wall composition for games and other people's projects, I would just start to filter down into what other people want of me rather than what I want to introduce totally. into projects. And so that's why I feel like I enjoy this pattern of kind of like doing something solo, working on someone else's project, you know, being part of the team, doing my own solo thing. It just all kind of like is this symbiotic relationship of discovering more about my music and myself and then bringing that into whatever my next project is. Yeah. And I think that that vulnerability and like distinct identity is part of why the Celeste soundtrack is so great. Like it just mm. fits so well and you're, you did a great job. I know you know that you did a great job, but you did a fucking wonderful job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. 
Also, I see a sweet little critter behind I you. I was going to ask, yes, Who's what's this? happening in the background here? Oh, down, down over there, that's Bobbin. That's uh, Hi, Bobbin. our wonderful little cat here, and she's feeling the breeze. We've got a little bit of a cross breeze going, <laughs> so she's wow. she loves to just kind of hang out and have her fur blown back by the wind. <laughs> it's a new experience for her, because when we were living in Seattle, like it was you know, very closed off. You know, we had air conditioning and all this stuff, so it was kind of like a little darker and not as much natural light and air and stuff and so now she's like the outside world is wonderful and I'm, I'm feeling the breeze and it's great <laughs> when you first started out making music and going through midi files like you were saying what mm-hmm. was your first like program or daw that you were doing that with it was a program called noteworthy composer and it was this like freeware shareware if it was shareware i never registered it um <laughs> program the way that's yes. the way and yeah it was just this really nice lightweight program where you could import and export midi files and then it would show up track by track basically like sheet music so you'd click in notes onto the staff and play back whatever in general midi instrument you had hooked up I had a Yamaha synth that was sort of a, a general MIDI synth, Yamaha PSR 535 something, because mm-hmm. I, I was writing with like general MIDI on my computer. Like I, didn't, I had like a yeah. Sound Blaster card. Oh, you have Sound Blaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. I mean, it wasn't like the best quality, but then my dad is also a musician, composer. He bought me a really nice synth, and so I hooked it up, and like that also became my speakers because I played everything back from like the speakers on the on the synth. Yep. It was like one of those performance models where you could you know bring it to a show or whatever. So yeah, like I would just compose everything and play everything back through that synth, and that was like my world of of music for a while. It was just MIDI files, and you know vgmusic.net I think is the website. <laughs> There's a vgmusic.com, yeah. Yes. Oh, old school site. Love it. Yeah, yeah. The Video Game Music Archive. This is where I found oh everything. Oh, my God. It's still active. Like, people are still making MIDI files this of is video amazing. game music. Did anyone make any MIDI files of Celeste? No. <laughs> Just leads to OC Remix. That, like, full circle, though, would be amazing. That would be really fun. But yeah, no, I <laughs> I actually contributed a couple of MIDI files that are on that site. I did some like <laughs> Ocarina of Time MIDIs. I did one for like the Windmill Hut, one for the Kipora Gibora's theme. It was great. And so like I downloaded lots of MIDIs, analyzed a lot of game tracks and wrote my original stuff. Were the MIDI files generally pretty accurate? like or were they of varying quality yeah yeah sometimes it's like trying to be a like one-to-one transcription sometimes it's not quite right like the chords are off (laughs) you know and sometimes the instrumentation is a little weird they use the wrong like what i would consider the wrong like midi instrument for what they're trying to replicate you know um the next step you know beyond that of course is like getting actual sound fonts and like getting the ROM files from the game and like importing all the music tracks there. And that's a whole nother can of worms that is really fun to get into. Or <laughs> you're just going directly into all of your favorite Super Nintendo games and finding the actual instruments and then writing stuff with them. <laughs> it drives me nuts and also makes me feel like a monster when yeah. I hear poorly transcribed music. Oh yeah. Because I'm like, how could you I think was this one is of the same thing? Of, like originally, like back in the day, like, you know, still learning. So That's what I have to keep telling myself is these are literal children 
yeah. doing this. So it's it's a learning experience. It's a, treated as part of the process. But at the same time, I'm like, that's not that court. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, come on. A bad MIDI for me, at least, is just so deeply nostalgic of oh, yeah. like, I'm yes. coding my little website and I'm eight years old and I'm oh, going to get the yes. Mortal Kombat theme MIDI. A hundred percent. It's great. That energy I feel still lives on there's YouTube channels where people do like piano transcriptions of things. Oh, and it's yes. like, here's how to play this song on the piano. And it's not quite right. Yep. You know, but it has the little like chart and like the notes that come down. And you're like, if you play this like a rhythm game, you will kind of be playing this piece of music. And so like, there's some really sweet people out there that transcribe like everything. Everything, yes. Everything. Oh. And so like, you gets uploaded and it's like, that's great. It's not right, but it's great. Yep. <laughs> yeah, love you know? the energy, love the yeah. enthusiasm. Yeah. The next one you do is going to be better. You're going to grow from this. It makes <laughs> you a better musician to listen to it, figure out what's wrong, and then fix it, right? So it's it's all part of the process to me because it's like, wait, that doesn't sound quite right. And sometimes, of course, it's like, oh, no, I was like totally wrong about what I thought this was. Mm -hmm. And the transcription's right, and my ear was just like, I was just hearing it weird or something, you know? Right, right. It goes both ways. So you started with that setup in the present day. What does your like setup DAW workflow synth involvement look like? I've got Ableton Live is sort of my main workstation that I've got going. I work a lot with, like, I don't really use Ableton in the way that it was intended to be used. Like, you know, it was kind of made for electronic music producers and like doing right. lots of loops and all kinds of stuff. I do everything in arrangement views, so I'm through composing stuff. Like, I'm not looping anything unless I need to. But, you know, what I really love about it is its ability to do like beat map stuff of just like taking, you know, samples and then, you know, mapping those to like whatever tempo changes you're doing. So like I do a lots of for like my percussion parts, I do a lot of like combination of like sample loops and also like my own like live percussion stuff that I'll play in. So I love mixing that because I feel like there's just like a certain texture that you get with a drum loop that like you can't get with just playing in your own MIDI data. And then combining the two is like perfect because then you can just like really fine tune exactly where you want, you know, all the different like little details. Details. Are you a splice person at all? Sometimes I'll chop and screw some stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I still need to kind of write for instruments, you know, for the most part, whether it's like, you know, a synth or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, I have a hard time, like, piecing together, like, instrumental samples. Um, sure. Because, like, I need to control the entire, like, chord structure, right? <laughs> Absolutely. If I'm dealing with, like, a, a trumpet line or something. I've done this before. Like, I actually did something for Minecraft that had, like, a combination of trumpet synths and live trumpet samples and it was the track called Other Side. And it was really fun because I just was like messing around because it's one of the disc tracks. And so like whenever Mojang folks like want me to write something for a disc, it's like, just write something, whatever you want, just just do it. <laughs> and so like both Pig Step and Other Side were like me just kind of like messing around and being like, this is fun. <laughs> um, That's awesome. And so yeah, I found this trumpet sample and I was like, I want to put this in, in a track. <laughs> And so I just started like experimenting with stuff and like throwing things together. And it's just like, oh, this actually works really well together. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's very rare that I'll find that with a, like an instrumental sample. I also, at least intellectually for me, and this is probably something I just have to get over, it's still, to me, it feels like cheating a little bit. <laughs> it's not. And a lot of great music comes out of this. Yeah. To me personally, it's kind of what you said is the control thing. It's like, I want to know that I actually decided this. 
right. and I have control over what it is. So I don't mean that to sound judgy for people who use this no, know, no. use loops and samples because I think they're great. For me personally, I just, I don't know, still a little part of me is like, eh. Yeah, it's actually been really interesting. Like I have a friend who has been getting more and more into composition as they've been like working on this game project of theirs. It's a video game called Misericord. It's a visual novel set in a convent, sort of historically accurate oh, time period. It's like, a, you know, mystery story. Ooh. And the developer is ZC. They're a really good friend of mine. And like, they've been basically like learning more and more about composition as they write music for this game and then like their own like solo stuff. And it's been really cool to see them kind of go from very sample driven to just fully like writing their own compositions. Yeah. And like, it's really cool to see like, you know, someone go from, and then still be able to retain totally. the sampling knowledge that they have, but then applying that to, you know, sample libraries and like, you know, MIDI instruments and stuff like that to really kind of get the best of both worlds. And it's also fun to like start out with the sample, listen to it, give it a, a once over put it away and try to recreate it. And then you invariably come up with something that's totally different. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you put them side by side. This happens to me all the time. I put them side by side. And I'm like, this is going to sound like such a ripoff. And then I play them <laughs> for people that weren't, you know, just other people. And they're like, these don't sound anything alike. What are you talking yeah. about? These are like totally different. <laughs> sure, sure. I think I got the same thing with like presets on synths. Yes. Like I used to shy completely away from presets. I was like, I have to build everything myself. Oh. I have to get into the metal, you know, down to the metal or whatever of the synth and just like mm -hmm. <laughs> construct like all of this stuff, you know, from scratch. And as I've been like getting more and more comfortable with presets, I'm just like, there's some just really good sounds in here. And it's like going through all the presets and just like getting inspired actually to write an entirely new piece yeah, of music yeah. because it sounds so good. Like you'll play something and you're like, ooh, okay, I can vibe with this, right? And then maybe yes. I'll tweak it a bit, you know, so it's not exactly the original sound and, yep. you know, adjust the filter, or, you know, if there's like something like rhythmic about it, like adjust that a little bit, but then just really kind of sit in it and just like construct the peaks around like this really cool preset that I found. Yeah, there's so many fun like happy accidents with that mm. too. I do a little bit of making music in Ableton, but like it's so exciting when you find something that's like here's this weird sequencer that for some reason sounds fucking awesome right here. <laughs> this whole thing has a completely different vibe and I'm going to chase whatever this is now. Yeah, totally. The biggest problem with presets to me are the people who try to be funny when they name them. And it's oh, like, yeah. okay, <laughs> come on, folks. We get it. It sounds kind of like Radiohead, so you need to, you know. <laughs> yeah. High and drier. <laughs> TV face or whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think this is a good time to move on to some segments. Let's do that. So we have two segments on the show. Our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to talk about a book, movie, video game, whatever it is, music, something you've been enjoying recently. The name of this segment is called What's Poppin'? And the theme song, you will not hear now because we added in post, but it does go <laughs> right here. This is how technologically advanced we are. That <laughs> we cannot, actually, you know what? I'm not gonna say we cannot. I'm gonna say we will not learn how to play the theme song during a recording, but whatever. You know, it's going to go here in the future. This is What's Poppin'. What's Poppin'? What's Poppin'? Layden, What's Poppin'? 
What's popping is that you just lied and I happen to know that you have a button on your end on Zencaster that enables you to play the What's Poppin' theme song and you simply choose no, to not do no, so every no, week. No, so no, I just no, want to no, put that no, out no, there no, for the record. No, 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 totally wrong. I do have a button, but the button is unreliable. This is the problem. So I'm looking at the button right now, but I'd say fully half the time I try to press the button and play the Prove theme it. song. It just press doesn't it, work. It play might it. work now. I'm going to play it right now. Let's see if we hear this. Here it is. You hear it? Yeah. yeah. All right. So that worked this time. Let's pop it. Okay. That's great. maybe the first time that you've ever actually played it for a guest. I just tricked uh, you into I, playing it for a guest. I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't trick me. <laughs> I did that of my own volition. Right. Of course. Anyway, wait, did you did you have a question for me, Brian? My choices are my own. <laughs> yes, I did, and that is what is popping. What's popping for me is a book. So. The preamble to the Poppin is that I was reading two different medical textbooks on Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy, light summer beach read. But there was uh, a true crime book that was mentioned. Munchausen on my undies. You're obsessed, Brian. <laughs> it's a great phrase that you just said munch. I did Come say on. munch. I, I, I said it a bunch. Right you said munch a bunch. One. Munch in a bunch. Well, it's speaking of munch in a bunch. Uh, <laughs> We got some Munchausen moms who are sure munching a bunch in this book. Uh, anyway, Death of Innocence, it is a sprawling, like cracking a 25-year-old cold case of oh, wow. a woman with Munchausen's who smothered five of her children, but yeah. it was all chalked up to SIDS. And there was this doctor who used this lady for a study and was oh, like monitoring her children. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you do? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. It was monitoring the children and then wrote this seminal study about like apnea in SIDS yep. and all the nurses at the hospital were like, dude, she's killing her kids. And he was like, no, it's the apnea. And then he <sighs> went on to like set the standard of SIDS research for the next two decades where he like clearly knew this lady had killed her kids, but that was the study that was used. It was like a decades of like baby monitors being developed. Oh, he knew it? He knew. Oh, I didn't realize that. A, it'd be impossible for him to not know. He's been incredibly defensive about it. And also <laughs> every nurse on staff were constantly talking to him. Like wow. she is killing her children. Like one of them was literally like, if you send that baby home today, I bet you a quarter he will be dead by tomorrow night. Sure enough. Oh. Wow. So he super knew. Anyway, so this book is about how detectives were solving like a case in the 90s involving like infanticide. And then that led them to cracking open this thing because this lady was just like living free. And so wild book, Death of Innocence. Wow. Crazy. Amazing. Highly recommend for people who want to ruin their day. <laughs> so that's what's popping for me. Great. Who's got a poppin? Oh, poppin. On the verge of moving, finished the first book of the Murderbot Diaries. I don't know if you've uh, read those books by me. Uh, no, what's that? Martha Wells. The first book is called All Systems Red, and it's about the titular Murderbot, um, who is <laughs> basically like an android who there's synthetic parts and also like natural parts to this robot. And they're like contracted out to these companies, very much like space capitalism kind of stuff going on. And 
they are on this expedition with a team of surveyors that are kind of going out there to like value this land essentially for you know researching and all the kinds of stuff to make a purchase potentially for use of that land and something goes terribly wrong there's you know a whole lot of sort of the politics of of this space capitalism situation happening and all they really care about is just kind of getting the job done and going back to like watching their huge like terabytes of serial dramas because <laughs> they have they have hacked themselves to basically like get rid of all of their like internal monitoring systems from the company that owns them and they have used this newfound freedom to just download as much like just trash television as they can and just watch it Mood. in their off time and like as you know <laughs> even like on the on the job and so they're just kind of like don't really care. They have just this big sort of apathy about like humanity and stuff, but they still are sort of thrust into the situation where they have to like take care of this crew that is under threat from other like rival crews. And, and it's, it's this really interesting thing of just like setting this premise for this character. And then the rest of, you know, the books in the series kind of go into them kind of like trying to find out more about like, you know, what happened. There was an incident where they were uh, sort of decommissioned for a time and then led them to like hack themselves. So yeah, it's like a really interesting thing because earlier this year I played a game Citizen Sleeper, which is fantastic incredible like just narrative rpg in that same kind of space capitalism <laughs> kind of <laughs> setting of just like everything kind of sucks but everyone is kind of like pulling together to like form community and so like, i just got really inspired to like go out and find like other media that was kind of in a similar vein and i also played disco elysium for the first time at the start of the year oh wow yeah so just on this bend of just like world building and like interesting character yeah. studies within like the sci-fi kind of frame i want to find like the weird like outliers in sci-fi that are kind of like trying to do things that are a bit more like exploring senses you know of humanity you know and like people pulling together and like what most sci-fi tends to be, which is just sort of like this hellscape of capitalism gone <laughs> completely like wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, you know, we're in the process of, of doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just it makes sci-fi a little bit less appealing where it's like, oh, but that's what's happening. That's what's like, happening. Yes. But but like <laughs> focusing on the stories of people like sort of overcoming odds and finding common humanity together. Yeah. The community, the mutual aid sci-fi. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, that's just kind of like feeling my creativity and then also trying to find hope <laughs> in, in all of yeah. that kind of like those stories. Nothing like some nice humanistic <laughs> sci-fi to make yeah. you just be like, I'm going to do synth beeps right now. Like <laughs> it gets you in the mood. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Brian, yes. what's popping? What's popping for me this week is also a book, three books. I don't know if that's ever happened in a oh. what's popping on the show before. Great. <laughs> The book for me is called The Secret Life of the Modern House by Dominic Bradbury. It's, I think, from last year. So it's an architecture book. And this author just goes through architecture from the late 19th century through the present day and groups it into various artistic movements. And it's basically like arts and crafts. Okay, here are six houses built during the style. Here's why each one is interesting and important. And it's essentially just a list of awesome houses. I mean, the book, it's not like a coffee table book. It's like a book book. And I love cool architecture. LA is actually an awesome place to be for cool residential architecture. So this is all residential stuff because there are a lot of interesting architects, especially in the 20th century that, you know, we're doing stuff like here. 
So I'm learning a lot about the various movements and architects. And some of these houses are even local. So you can like drive to see them because mm. Southern California was a popular place to build, you know, especially for like the modernist kind of mid-century stuff, build houses. So it's a, you know, a fun and very easy read. Like each house gets a couple of pages tops. So it's very modular and easy to just be like, here's a cool house. Okay, great. Oh, actually, I want to go look up more pictures of it. Can I see the interior? Can I see the exterior? What else hmm. did this architect do? I'm learning a lot also about the movement to make residential architecture kind of the central thing for a lot of architects, which it hadn't been before rough, you know, mid 19th century or so. Are there any movements that you liked, didn't know as much about or like surprised to find out are a thing? Kind of all of them <laughs> to, to, to some extent. Like I'm a hobbyist with this stuff. I'll tell you about one architect who was active in the 30s. I guess you call him a modernist, but I'm not 100% sure. This guy, I guess, Ricard Neutra. Neutra is Austrian. There are tons of Neutra homes in Silver Lake. And in fact, there's a Neutra museum right across from Silver Lake Coffee here. There's a Neutra place with like three Neutra homes. This Austrian guy moved out here and does all sorts of cool, like pretty boxy looking things. But these are homes that people still live in that were built from like the 30s through the 50s or something like that. I discovered his work very recently, actually. And then a couple of his houses are in this book too, I think. And it's amazing. You know, you can just like, I'm going to drive to see the Nutra houses. Okay, here we are. It's in Silver Lake and there's a whole row of them. Wow. That was a discovery for me is his work. The famous one I'd love to see is Falling Water by Frank Lloyd Wright, which I think is in Pennsylvania somewhere. And is this like classic, real boxy looking Frank Lloyd Wright thing. Oh, shit. That's so cool. Right. One of the iconic homes of the 20th century. I somehow had never seen this. It's amazing, right? Wow. I want to get murdered there. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that's where my brain went. I'm pretty sure Ex Machina <laughs> took place there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just look at that thing, right? That's wild. Yeah. It's also a lot of like destination homes that I'd love to go see. Even you know, if they're old enough, they're historical landmarks. Right. You're not just barging on, on a family. That's right. I mean, yeah. a lot of the ones <laughs> that I just talked about, the Nutra stuff, are legit family homes. But some of these, right. like, with Frank Lloyd Wright, a bunch of them are like landmarks and you can go take tours. There's a cool one, actually, that I just read about in the arts and crafts movement, which I'd seen a couple times, designed by Green and Green in the very early 20th century here. It's called the Gamble House because one of the Gambles of Procter & Gamble lived there. It's in what I just found out was called the Little Switzerland area of Pasadena and <laughs> is this amazing arts and crafts home with a kind Look of Japanese that. influence. It's a lot of, you know, wood and beautiful glass. Wow. It was built at a time when electricity was available, but still very suspicious. And so they used <laughs> electric lights, but people were like, oh, that's going to be bad for your eye or whatever, you know, made up some bullshit about why you shouldn't use electricity. But you can take a tour of that house. I've done it and it's a million percent worth it. It's like this beautiful home in Pasadena. Yeah, that stained glass is like it's stunning. very cool. Yeah, the timber in it is just amazing. So wow. when you have a, book that's full of cool homes, they're all great. Like everyone is like, holy shit, what? Yeah, if, if you find any super cool ones, shoot them my way. I will. What's the one I just read about? Castle Drogo in England, the last castle built in England, a 20th century castle. 
Whoa, look at it. Yeah, it's this weird, like, boxy 20th century castle. Yeah, it's like a brutalist castle. Right. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, brutalist castles are what's popping. Yep. Now it is time for our final segment, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And the theme song for the segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons, goes right here. This one I actually don't have on my soundboard. See, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, cool. Yay, that was the theme song. We're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer, annoyance, little irritating thing that has happened. So I can start this one off. Okay. I went to see the Comedy Bang Bang live show in Los Angeles this past Sunday. It's a popular comedy podcast with many comedians I like. And it turns out the show, which was at the beautiful theater at the Ace Hotel, amazing, amazing theater here in town. It was not just the Comedy Bang Bang podcast. It had three, quote unquote, opening acts, which were other podcasts like on their network. And the three openers were an hour each. And the main show was probably two hours. And there were no in and out privileges. So I went to this with my sister, who also likes this podcast and happened to be visiting in town. Also, the doors were half an hour after they said they would be, which is always annoying to me. Oh, that sucks. So we get there and it's like, oh, we're going to go see one of the openers, like then go get dinner and then come back. And we get and they're like, yeah, you can't leave this place and then come back. (laughs) We got there at like 530 and the thing was going to go, we found out until like 11 question mark. Oh, God. And we left after the first hour because I was like, I'm hungry. And it just makes no sense to do a five-hour show with no in and out privileges. So that's my lemon. You know, not a big deal. We saw one part of it. It was fun. We saw Matt Gorley and Andy Daly do their weird watch every episode of the TV show Banana, uh, Banana, Bonanza uh, podcast. Banana. <laughs> banana. I want to see the TV show Banana. I do too, actually. That'd be a, it's like a 70s Serpico type detective. Right, right, right. Their podcast is called Bananas for Bonanza, but they spell Bonanas, B O Nanas, because it's like Bo Nanza. Terrible marketing, and that's the point. Yeah, that sounds like a Gorley joke, all right. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. And they're all very funny. God bless them. But, you know, I think Bonanza has. 450 episodes or something like that. And they're on the second season or whatever it is. So (laughs) it's a slug. Anyway, that's my lemon. Come on, guys, if you're doing a five-hour show, let people come in and out. We need to eat too. My lemon is that it's sort of like a bittersweet lemon. A gig that I have really enjoyed for the past, like greater part of a year has come to a close. It was really fun. I enjoyed doing it. And it's, you know time to go do something else, but it was really great. And uh, I'm just bummed that I don't get to do more. Well, look, it's been great having you as the co-host on the show and I do wish <laughs> you all the best in the future. Yeah, it's been all right. What are you going to do about the name after I'm gone? I'm not changing it. Oh, you're just going to keep it? Yep. What if I sued you? Yeah, fucking bring it. <laughs> all I can say is my legal team will be in touch. You just have to call it night with Brian Wick. And We'll see what happens. Okay, well. No, but I'm sorry to hear that. That's a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. Well, lemon. Let's see. Part of my new 
office setup that I've been trying to get going here. This is kind of a temporary setup because I ordered a new music workstation desk that I'm very excited for. Nice. It's going to be this sort of really nice like two-tier thing with like a little drawer for my 88-key keyboard. And it'll have lots of space and like rack mount stuff. I, I don't actually have anything to put in a rack mount, but I could now. Yeah. And like, you know, cable management stuff in the back and it'll be great. But it is apparently... So big and so heavy <laughs> that it uh, is being shipped in two packages. So there's one that arrived already. Like literally a week ago, I got a package that was just so heavy. Like the DHL guy got here and like he was like, do you want to come to the truck? <laughs> so we like went to the truck and like watched him like struggle to pull this thing out of the truck and like get onto like a little like lift. And then, oh and then, God. so three of us, you know, my wife and and the DHL guy and me. It's so big that they built fabric handles into the box. And, but anyway, so we were like dragging the oh thing and like had to lift it up the stairs because um, you know we're on the second floor, and so it's all this stuff of just oh. like oh God, this huge. And there's a second box that's not actually part of the shipment that he was delivering. And so I went onto the tracking site and it is still in customs. Oh my God. (laughs) Apparently, apparently, you know, having two boxes, one of them was just like, oh, this is fine. Let's just get this through, you know, and go through customs and it gets delivered. And then the second box, which is critical because it's like, I can't just build half the desk, you know, I have to have all of it, you know, assembled. And so it's it's still in customs and possibly getting to me at some point over a week after the first half has gotten here. So I have this very large, heavy box just kind of sitting in the kitchen, just kind of like, well, eventually this will be a really cool new <laughs> office setup. But for now, I'm just kind of like, well, here I am <laughs> sitting here. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's so tantalizing (laughs) to be so close yet so far. I understand why customs exist, but also, come on. It's wood and metal. What are we doing here, people? It's a gas. (laughs) For me, it's a treat. Yeah. Let it through. All right. So now we will each do three peaches, which are things big, small, things that are good, exciting, you're happy about grateful for, et cetera. Those are peaches. Who has peaches? Uh, I have peaches. Do your peaches. My first peach is that even though I could give absolutely two shits about any sporting event whatsoever, I'm going to see a Dodgers game tonight with my family. And (laughs) I don't care about baseball. I love going to see baseball games because it's just fun to be in the stadium and get a hot dog and watch specifically my eight-year-old She's been playing softball and is very into it and just loves watching people do it. So we're going to have a great family outing to Dodger Stadium tonight. And it's a great, you know, great classic baseball stadium. And we'll get a hot dog and ice cream and a hat and my kid will be thrilled. So that's going to be fun. That's peach number one. Uh, Peach number two is also kid related, as many of my peaches are. We're in this little gap between the end of summer camp and the beginning of school here for a couple weeks. And so I took Audrey, my daughter, to the California Science Center in L.A., which I didn't realize is free, for one thing, and also has a space shuttle, the real space shuttle that went into space and then came back, because that's what they do. Mm. It is there, the Endeavor. I mean, there are many space shuttles. This is one of them. And it's just, like, there, and you can go see it. It's in a gigantic pavilion, and you walk in, and I don't know, like, intellectually— what I was expecting, I like. I knew the space shuttle was there. I was like, yeah, it's a space shuttle. Cool. 
you walk in and I was just like, oh my, it's the, oh my God, it's the space shuttle. It's right there. And it's a big giant. It went to space. It went to space and it's, it's big. And it is just an amazing thing to be able to see and be in the presence of. And my kid like lost her mind. She really loves space and all that stuff. And she was just like, whoa, and running around and you can see the engines and the, you know, you can't climb in it or anything. It's up on mounts, but you're right underneath it. And it's an incredible thing. And one of these things that is just a triumph of human ingenuity and engineering and science. And it's just like remarkable. Here's something I didn't expect about the space shuttle. So you know what the space shuttle looks like. It's white and it's got black, you know, panels or what on it. The white stuff is very textured. It's not smooth and white on the outside. It's like they've got these textured panels all over it. Hmm. Looks kind of like fabric. It's not. I'm sure it's metal or whatever, but it has a visual grain to it that I wasn't expecting. But yes, that was super fun. Also, it's just amazing watching a little kid's mind get completely blown when they see something incredible is the best because they're just like, huh? Why? You know, <laughs> amazing feeling. And my final peach is I had lunch the other day with an old college friend I hadn't seen in many years. We saw each other at our reunion in June. Turns out he lives in LA and we got together for lunch and it was lovely to reconnect with a friend I hadn't seen in, in a long time. You know, we were not like super close in college. We lived in the same hall together freshman year and would say hi, super nice dude. And it's just like, well, this is so cool. What a fun reconnection. You know, we're both in our late forties now and lives have taken various paths and just hearing about where everybody is and, and what he was doing. And he's also in the music industry. And I was just like, wow, what a fun, interesting person to reconnect with. Cool. That's great. Yeah. So those are my three peaches. I can briefly do my peaches. My first peach is milk bar. Love a milk bar. You know, the ice creams, the cookies, pies, whatever. But they make pints of ice cream now, which is thrilling for me because they've got like a cornflake chocolate chip marshmallow one that's delicious. They have a chocolate birthday cake that has like fudge and also like big vanilla frosting piece. It's just delicious. Great. They also have like a uh, pie one where it's like that nice pie filling that's just like all swirled in the ice cream. Mm-hmm. Great. I've just been all about the dreamy, creamy summer this summer. Mm-hmm. Just lots of ice cream. Love it. Is that, wait, wait. My, is that your invention, dreamy, creamy summer or is that their <laughs> No, branded? it is not. No, okay. it is not. No, it's not. Shout out to podcast Knowledge Fight. They are also doing their own dreamy, creamy summer right now. So my second peach is I'm seeing Father John Misty tonight at the Hollywood Ah, Forever Cemetery. Okay, fun. So excited. I saw him at the Greek the week that I moved here, like five or six years ago. And so getting to see him in the place. And I know he's going to play the song Hollywood Forever Cemetery sings about fucking in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And I'm just, I'm stoked. Where's the stage there? I don't know geographically of how to describe where it is, but it's... Is it near that main like mausoleum by the pond? Yes, kind of. I also saw last podcast on the left there a couple of years ago, but it's chilled. I love going to concerts and infiltrating the smoke circles of just like... Oh, yeah. Always an interesting crowd at a Father John Misty concert. And then my last peach is that I've finally had a little bit of time to get 
more 3D print stuff set up. So I'm going to do a quick show and tell. <gasps> I got. Sorry, before you do that, before you do that, this video is available on our Patreon. If you want to see, if, you, if you're just true. listening to this, you can see what Layden's holding up. If you go to patreon.com slash Layden Knight. Okay, please continue. All right. So here's a little Mothman. I just finished printing him this morning. Um, I printed all of the pieces wow. and painstakingly assembled this ghost face who I'm going to paint like sparkly pink. And I notice you are sleeve buddies with ghost face. I am. Here's a little um, Samara from The Ring crawling out of a TV. This is my favorite one. Yeah, I'm so excited about this one. It is so cool. Oh, I was just sanding all the bits down before we got on this episode, and it was a nice, nice little chill experience. So yes, 3D printing is literally the coolest shit that has ever happened to me. And there's my beautiful little guy up there in the background. All right. Excellent. So those are mine. Those are my peaches. Lovely. I've been holding my little mothman this entire record. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a comforting object. Anyway. Peaches. Um, Please, peaches. Well, I've been talking about it this entire time, but one of the peaches of living here now is living in a walkable neighborhood is fantastic. Oh, yeah. We've been just kind of going out and going to various you know places. There's an ice cream place nearby. They do you know some sorbets, so I can have them. I am lactose free, <laughs> so I thrive off of the the various like vegan ice creams that are out there. Same. This place is not a vegan ice cream place, but there's some good sorbets, and they have a vegan vanilla, so I can sort of do a little creamsicle kind of thing going on. And there's uh, a bunch of really nice, you know, restaurants. We're back in Canada, so there's Canadian A and W. Just like a guilty pleasure of like, you know, just uh-huh. really yep. good um, yep. fast food burger. But it's really good. I like the burgers and just kind of the giant frosty mugs of root beer. So yeah, it's just really pleasant to be here and. The other one is a book that I just started reading that I actually have here. It's a a manga that just got a little English localization. It's been around for a while, but it's a manga called Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko by Hitoshi Ashinano. Oh, cool. I read like the first couple of chapters. I just kind of keep it on my desk, just kind of like paw through it, you know, when I can. And it's this really cool story of just an android, a common theme here, <laughs> an android sort of at the end of the world who runs a coffee shop. And the world is kind of like apocalyptic. Everyone kind of knows that the world is ending in this sort of like e- <laughs> ecological sort of way. And so she's this robot that will live on past humanity, but is keeping this coffee shop going. And so she has like her regulars and, you know, some other like people that come by the coffee shop. So it's just like this really kind of interesting like exploration of what society is like in the sort of end times and like what the perspective of someone who is you know living beyond humanity is with all of this like situation going on but yeah i'm looking very much looking forward to reading more of it cool i guess the other peach is one of my solo projects that i've been been working on is a game project that is very ambiguous still like in like what i want it to be but i spent some time brainstorming like where i actually want it to go this week and kind of visualized the very end of it in a way that I was just kind of like, okay, I got it. Like I, I know where I want to go thematically, tonally with with this this story. So I have like a direction to go in, which got me really excited to just kind of spend more of my free time on that right. once I can. <laughs> Love it. That's Amazing. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Lena, thank you so much 
for being here today. It was really fun to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I always love we can get in depth about music and stuff and hear. Yeah, you know, like I was process. not expecting such an in depth music uh, conversation, <laughs> but I appreciate your knowledge and experience to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're a Yeah, too. I figured it's, this would be a, a very good duo of people, just a couple of music nerds. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a lot of people request you come on the show as well. And it's Absolutely. just great to see you again. Yeah. If people want to check out your music, what you're working on, where can they find you online? I am tweeting probably not too much, but a bit <laughs> over at Karain, K-U-R-A-I-N-E. That is my Twitter handle. And if you want to see a list of every project that I've contributed to, it's at lena.fyi. That is the website. And all of my music that I sell myself is over at radicaldreamland.bandcamp.com. And that's where my music lives. You can buy it. You can listen to it. All right. I'm following you. <laughs> right now boom we hell go. yeah uh, well folks <laughs> go yeah. buy it go listen to it play celeste yeah hug your dogs don't leave your underwear in places that your dog could feasibly get yeah, them. anything in that dog's mouth <laughs> right now no yep undie free great undie free all right since 93 <laughs> thanks for listening folks see ya uh <laughs> see ya next time bye everybody <laughs> bye, bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.